It is with great pleasure to welcome you all to this special segment of It's Rainmaking Time. I'm very excited about this segment. I study a lot in the area of health and wellness, kind of behind the scenes, and I share my findings with all my friends and loved ones, my associates, everybody I know that I could be of service to because it's part of well-being. So this is a special segment about breathing through your nose. And it sounds so simple, right? It sounds like big deal. Just breathe through your nose and don't breathe for your mouth, through your mouth. But the reality is that most of us do breathe through our mouth. We don't breathe through our nose. And this is causing all kinds of havoc with human health all over the world, with children, with teenagers, with adults, men, women, with athletes. It's, it's really degrading what's possible for human beings. And so I've invited somebody who trained with a pioneer. Our guest, Patrick McCune, trained with Dr. Konstantin Boteko at the Boteko Clinic in Russia. And Patrick is the author of many books. Two of them that I read are called Close Your Mouth, A Revolutionary Approach to Relieving the Symptoms of Asthma, Hay Fever, and Chronic Nasal Congestion for Life, and The Oxygen Advantage, The Simple Scientifically Proven Breathing Technique That Will Revolutionize Your Health and Fitness. Let me just say this to you. No matter who you are and what you do, this is so profound and You have the opportunity to be with a great, not a good, a great, highly dedicated, devoted, passionate master of the realm, Patrick McCune. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Thanks for being with us. Thanks very much, Kim. It's great to be here. One of the things I think after going through both books and listening to, I don't know, maybe 25 interviews you've done. That's obviously clear to me is that most of us, the lay public, confuses breathing deeply with oxygenation as if one causes the other. And the lack of the biochemical understanding of the relationship between oxygen and CO2 is so profound that if we don't get this, I think most of us are not going to get it until we're doing exercises. But to lead us into the exercises, we've got to go through this pathway. I want you to make the distinction between and, the, and explain the relationship between CO2, carbon dioxide, and oxygen. We really need, we need to get this once and for all. Yeah, I think it's very important. Um, and none of this is new information. Back in 1904, there was a Danish physiologist called Christian Bohr. And he discovered the partial pressure of carbon dioxide plays a role in red blood cells releasing oxygen to the tissues and organs. So in essence, what it means is when we take a breath of fresh air into our lungs, oxygen passes from the lungs into the blood. 98.5% of oxygen is carried in the blood by hemoglobin. And one of the keys to cause hemoglobin to release oxygen to where it's needed is carbon dioxide. But there's an idea in the Western world that oxygen is good and carbon dioxide is bad. So breathe in as much air as you can to get in as much oxygen and breathe out as much air as you can to get rid of as much carbon dioxide. But the only problem with this is carbon dioxide is necessary for red blood cells to release oxygen. 
So the more air you breathe, the less oxygen get, gets delivered throughout the body, including tissues and organs. And I think we will, we've all experienced this at some time or other. You know, how many of you have taken full big breaths and you're feeling lightheaded, you're feeling just a little bit disoriented? That's not a sign of hyperoxygen. That's a sign of reduced blood flow. And it's very common as well for people to have cold hands and cold feet, you know. So cold hands and cold feet are very much influenced by how hard and how fast you breathe. And if you have a habit of breathing a little bit too fast and too hard, the volume of air is greater than what you need. That's causing too much carbon dioxide to be removed from the lungs and the blood and your blood vessels constrict. So your blood circulation is influenced by the volume of air you breathe and your oxygen delivery is also influenced by the volume of air you breathe. Now, most of us have heard that carbon dioxide is antithetical to life. In 2009, the IPCC had, not to get political, but it they had basically politicized and regulated carbon dioxide as if it kills us and it's bad. So I ended up doing a whole show on carbon dioxide because the whole breath of life, the science that we've known for 50 plus years, all of a sudden went out the window over something that had nothing to do with the actual trace gas itself. So that's why I also felt it was really important because it's like no one wants to talk about CO2. Oh my God, CO2, it's been demonized. So when we understand that we have a direct relationship, CO2 is very important. And CO2's relationship to oxygenation is very important and how they work with blood saturation. That's why I wanted you to explain this because I think there's a shutoff valve in many people. You bring up CO2, it's like, what? And I saw, yeah, go ahead. In the early 1900s, hospitals throughout the United States, they had carbon dioxide that if patients came in with anxiety or panic disorder or other ailments, that they would breathe in carbon dioxide. And I think we all know of when somebody is having a panic attack, they're sometimes told to breathe in and out of a brown paper bag. Now, of course, the brown paper bag, it's not good to continue breathing in because oxygen can't get in. But the whole idea of the brown paper bag was to pool carbon dioxide. So you breathe into the bag, you're breathing carbon dioxide from your lungs into the bag, and then you breathe from the bag back into your lungs to increase CO2 in your lungs and blood to improve blood flow to the brain and improve oxygen delivery. So we have to consider carbon dioxide. The atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the atmosphere. But the human lungs and blood needs 5%. So we have 0.04% in the atmosphere, but we need to survive. We need 5% of the atmosphere. And the atmosphere atmospheric pressure at sea level is 760 millimeters of mercury 5% of 760 is about 38 millimeters of mercury so we need that as human beings and if we if it goes below 35 millimeters of mercury it spells problems and it can affect many different organs and systems so ranging from mental health to respiratory to sleep to the gastrointestinal tract to um there's a relationship for example between exhaustion that you spoke about and hyperventilation syndrome so yeah so carbon dioxide it's a pity it has been demonized it's a very essential very essential gas you know and apparently it was only it was a doctor back in the 1930s and his name was D- dr waters 
And he started demonizing carbon dioxide. And he spent 10 years demonizing it. And as a result, then carbon dioxide got bad press. So he was uh, he probably had his own motivations for doing that. Little things have actually started in medicine, even the role of cholesterol, how you get it. Is it good or is it bad? You know, there are doctors that, you know, set up certain projects and then all of a sudden that project became the standard, even though it was wrong, even though it was off. So this happens all the time, uh, you know, when you can't, when it's not possible to divorce politics from science. And one of the things I love about your work and what you're doing, aside from your passion and your calling, which I have utmost respect, is that you're emphatic about the the biochemical part of this and not just the mechanic side. Because there's a lot of people that do yoga and there's a lot of people, I did yoga when I was in tournament tennis. It relaxed me, but I can't, I mean, I did Hatha yoga. I didn't do Kriya yoga. I didn't do other types of yoga, but it didn't get to the, how psychologically I knew I would go into a match. And if it went into three sets, I didn't know if I'd make it. And it was a secret <laughs> to me, but nobody, you know, people said, well, then weightlift. I was very lean. I was in great shape. It didn't matter. I ran, I, I could, I practiced three to four hours a day. It didn't matter. I couldn't get to what it was. And I'm sure there's athletes all over the world Training who don't know as well. Physical training doesn't change your breathing patterns. The only sport that may train your breathing is swimming. And the reason being is when you're swimming and the water is pressing up against you. So you're breathing against resistance and also likely that your face is in the water so that you're breathing less air. So I suppose we have to consider, Kim, every breath that we take is not driven by oxygen. It's driven by carbon dioxide. And if you have an individual with a stronger chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup, their breathing is going to be harder and faster. So you can think of an athlete on the court. And we'll say this athlete has perfectionist tendencies, as many of them do. They're very driven individuals. Otherwise, they wouldn't get to where they were or where they are. I know it well. <laughs> but they can also put high stress demands on themselves. And they can, of course, you know, experience trauma just like anybody else. And that can change their breathing patterns. So perfectionist tendencies, trauma, stress, hormonal changes in women. So that can change breathing patterns. So the individual then can be, become overly sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. And then when they're doing their physical exercise, their body is generating more CO2 because it's a byproduct from our metabolism. And as carbon dioxide is coming from the tissues into the blood, if the individual is oversensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide, their breathing is faster and harder. They're more likely to gas out too soon. They're more likely to feel disproportionate breathless. They're more likely to feel muscle fatigue. So, and the other aspect that I would say is that if we have a habit of breathing harder and faster in our everyday life, it also impacts our sleep, but more importantly, it affects our ability to self-regulate. Because when we breathe harder, faster, and upper chest chronically, and it's not as if it's so evident, you know, it's pretty hidden. Okay, I can pick up on it because I've been looking at it for 20 years. Most people don't pick up on it. But that individual with a stronger chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide, we would say is less resilient in the sporting arena, but also in the corporate and also, for example, first responders or any endeavor that we do. 
So all of this, when, when you talk about uh, the inability to self-regulate, what specifically are you referring to? I talk about when things go wrong, then I'm not going to succumb and launch myself into a fight or flight response. Because when I go into that response, I'm not able to do anything about it. I'll give you this example. I was listening to a podcast by Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. I often use this example. He was, he was interviewing a brain surgeon. The brain surgeon He's very said, good, by the way. He's a lot of fun to watch. He, is. he has a blast. A lot of this going. <laughs> brain He's surgeon, fun. <laughs> brain surgeon says, he says, when I get into a tricky situation, now you can imagine a brain surgeon getting into a tricky situation. That is a tricky situation. So he said, when I get into a tricky situation, the first thing I do is prevent myself from hyperventilating. Now, how many people out there get into a tricky situation? They know nothing about the connection between their breathing and the mind. And because of the tricky situation, they breathe a little bit faster, harder, irregular breathing or upper chest breathing. And all the body is telling the brain that the body isn't safe. And the brain wants to protect the body and the brain wants you to get out of the situation. You go into a fight or flight response. Think about kids going into exams. If they're a bit, if they're a bit nervous going into the exams and their breathing is a little bit faster and harder, that's going to sabotage their performance. Not because the children are not intelligent or they haven't studied but because their nerves have got in the way. So things go wrong, you know, like I will go out on stage. Okay. It's something it gets easier with experience. You're going out talking to maybe five, six, seven, 800 people. I self-regulate before I go out there. I down-regulate first and then I up-regulate. So I change my autonomic state because we can influence through the breath. And it's not about taking these deep, these deep breaths. What I mean about breathing is not what's being taught in most yoga studios throughout the world. And I've just finished writing a book for yoga, Breathing for Yoga. Breathing and yoga changed in around the 1880s. Before 1880, breathing and yoga was light. It was subtle. It was suspension of the breath. It was about reducing the chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. After 1880, there was an idea in, in breathing that the more air you breathe, full big breaths, that crept into yoga. So it changed direction. And I think it's really time for to bring that back to basics. And I would say that yoga has a tremendous potential because so many people are attending it. And can you imagine if students are attending yoga with panic disorder, with asthma, with hyperventilation syndrome, with exhaustion syndrome, with gastrointestinal issues, with panic attacks, et cetera, a good yoga instructor will be able to directly target their students' breathing to help specifically with those conditions. I have been using breathing to help with those conditions for 20 years. But even more, you know, I work with snipers. I teach these guys who are highly... Better be nice to you. <laughs> they are. An actual fact, it's kind of at first when you're working with a group at that level, you feel, okay, maybe a small bit intimidated. You get talking to them. And they're so humble, you know, they're very ordinary individuals. And I was brought in specifically with the, the reason to teach them how to breathe, to self-regulate, to lower the heart rate, and when to pull the trigger of a gun for maximum accuracy. So that's for breathing. And that's just one example. But I also work with boxers. I work with top athletes. Because there is a point that we want to have the right amount of nerves, not too much, not too little. And even if you think about police officers on the front line, in one study of 57 police officers, if they go into a situation, 
you know, when I was talking to one Roger Rouge, we were having a podcast together and this came up and he's saying, listen, he says, we're in a police car. We could be driving at 100 miles an hour. We're already ramped up. Our heart rate is already up to 140, 150 beats per minute. So we're already highly stressed even before we get into the situation. Now, the problem with a police officer, if they go into a situation too stressed, it has been proven that they are more likely to use lethal force. But if they go into a situation too relaxed, it's more likely they miss cues and they put their colleagues' lives in danger. So there's a reason why Navy SEALs and special forces use breathing techniques to self-regulate. But we we should all have those techniques. It should be taught in school. When you said that the human nose has 30 different functions, it was on one of the podcasts. I thought that was amazing. We practically learned nothing about the human nose. We've learned nothing about breathing. Uh, We've learned basically... I mean, most of us, unless unless we've read your books and we've heard you speak, we don't know anything about the distinction between nose breathing and mouth breathing. You've said it a thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times in your teaching and in podcasts, but I wonder if you could give a sequence for the listeners to its rainmaking time. The distinction between nose breathing and mouth breathing is what? The mouth does absolutely nothing for the breath. So... If you were to open your mouth and look into the mouth and ask, what part of the mouth plays any role in terms of improving the quality and conditioning of that air before it's drawn into the lungs, our mouth has zero effect. So, So our mouth is simply a hole. It's an entry point that air goes straight down our throat into our lungs. Our nose does all the work. And the human nose is not just this thing that we see in our face when we look into the mirror. The the extent of the nasal cavity is when you put your tongue up into the roof of your mouth and when you drag your tongue all the way along the roof of the mouth until you feel the soft palate, the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose. So we have a lot of space in behind the, into the skull, that is the nasal cavity. You know, we select our mates based on the information from the nose to the brain. We have a nerve called the olfactory nerve. We have this communication going always from the nose to the brain sniffing out danger. Our ancestors would have been using, that term isn't out there just for the sake of it. You know, and also visuospatial awareness is higher with nasal breathing. Memory is higher. Attention is higher with nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. Our sleep is better. People with asthma, people with respiratory conditions. COVID, you know, there is a gas that was first identified in the exhale breath of the human being in 1991. This gas is called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a bronchodilator, so it's antiviral. It helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs. It helps to improve gas exchange. So it's cleaning that air before it's drawn into the lungs, but we can only harness nasal nitric oxide by breathing in through the nose. Now, we were told, go wash your hands, go wear masks. Nobody was talking about the importance of nose breathing. I'm not going to say that if you breathe through your nose, it will help to prevent, it'll stop you completely from getting lung co- or sorry, COVID. But what I will say is that the mouth does nothing in terms of defense of incoming air, atmospheric air as it's drawn into the lungs. So the only chance that we have is by breathing through the nose. I have a question here. Is the yeah. nose yeah. function then, like the liver is the detox of the body, the nose is the liver of the face. It's the detox mechanism. It's the detox organ space, whatever you call it, that sanitizes all the air coming in. Is that correct? Am I correct on that? 
Correct. And it goes beyond that. It okay. goes beyond that. It is filtering particles. It's antiviral. It's antimicrobial. But it's also harnessing gases to help open up the airways. And also when you breathe through your nose, it's slowing down breathing. And slower breathing, the brain spies on our breathing. This was first identified in 2017 really? by Stanford. <laughs> and the thing about this is that knowing that the brain spies on our breathing, we can we can use that to our advantage. Because if we're in a difficult situation, don't have a fast exhalation, have a really slow exhalation. Then the body is telling the brain that everything is okay. Your nose is also with better recruitment of the diaphragm. So 50% of people with lower back pain have dysfunctional breathing. So we need the diaphragm breathing muscle. It's not just there for respiration, but it also provides support, stabilization of the spine. So the nose is doing so much in terms of the human body. And in 1988, it was identified that nasal breathing increases the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood by nearly 10% nose breathing. And people who are chronically mouth breathing, society doesn't look well on mouth breathers. To call somebody a mouth breather is a derogatory term. You know, the, the village idiot would have been the mouth breather. But unfortunately, now mouth breathing has become very, very common. 25 to 50% of studied children. And I'll give you, go a little bit deeper into this. One study by a researcher called Karen Bonnock. Her study was published in the journal Pediatrics in 2012. She examined 11,000 British school children aged from six months to 57 months. These children, if they were snoring, mouth breathing, having apneas in sleep, if they were untreated by age five, they had a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. Wow. Our sleep and the development of the brain is impacted by our breathing. She also goes on to say in that paper that's published, and Pediatrics is a really high-ranking journal, she says there are 3 million children in the United States, 3 million, aged between 6 and 21 years of age, who have conditions associated with sleep disorders. And of that, mouth breathing, snoring, and apnea are the classic hallmark symptoms. We should always breathe through our nose, both during the day, but especially during sleep. We should never wake up at a dry mouth in the morning. Well, that's a complete mental retraining. I know when I started to put tape on my mouth, I tried all different types of tapes and somehow I would wake up, the thing would be missing in the bed. It was extracted secretly in the night. But I don't know why or how do people talk about that? Maybe that's when you're first training to do it. Like I would have it on. I would be okay, fall asleep, and then mysteriously it would be missing in the middle of the night. Probably I pulled it off, right? People yeah, do people it. do. They fold it up. They have it neatly tucked away. They have it even sell it taped onto the back of their headboard and they're wondering how on earth they get there. But that's, that's, <laughs> that's generally it. That's the transition phase. And then it becomes kind of part of us, you know. But about 50% of adults are waking up at a dry mouth in the morning. Even our dental health you know, when you go into a dental practice and you're seeing this <clears throat> poster up in the wall, <clears throat> regular brush cleaning, for example, don't be drinking fizzy drinks. Don't be eating too many sugar items. What about mouth breathing? Mouth breathing dries out the saliva. The saliva is what protects the mouth. So if you're a mouth breather, you're drying out the saliva, you're also more dehydrated. Bacteria is more rampant, more prone to gum disease, dental cavities, even chapped lips, bad breath. That's associated with mouth breathing. So here we have, you know, 
We're talking about dental health being affected by mouth breathing, asthma and respiratory conditions being affected, sleep being affected, mental health being affected. Somebody with mouth open and they have anxiety or panic disorder or depression. They are more prone to sleep issues because of mouth breathing. They're breathing faster. They're breathing shallow. Fast and shallow breathing is going to put the body into a greater stress response. I, I, I've been thinking about one part of this that I haven't heard mentioned, and I want to run this by you. It feels to me like the resistance, aside from the fact that it's not public, central public knowledge, that nose breathing is distinct from mouth breathing, and that breathing not only matters, it'll impact the quality of your life, positively or negatively, okay? Aside from the fact that that's not the standard paradigm in the world, that we don't, we don't cognize that, it, it, not only it hasn't been taught, but I have another feeling about this, that because breathing is considered soft, is considered something that certain people pay attention to. It's really psychological. Why something soft and more subtle, unless you're in stress with it, would not be tended to, would not be focused on, would not be a focus of concentration. In the same way that it took so many years for men to acquaint themselves with typing, when it was perceived as a woman's job as a secretary to type, men didn't want to be associated with that role. When it transitioned into you're using a computer, the whole psyche changed, men got involved. And it's that type of transition that I see with breath and breathing. Similarly, it looks soft like the typewriter did, but it's not. It's really the supercomputer of human health and health in general. You agree? Yeah, I think it's a great way you put it there. You know, it's a tool. It's a tremendous tool. You know, you think about the human mind. How many people are listening to us now? And they're not able to concentrate. They're not able to hold their attention on one thing. Their attention span is dreadfully poor. They're on Twitter. They're tweeting. <laughs> if they do put their attention on something, their mind is drifting off. And we can't produce any quality of work. We can literally do nothing if we don't have the capacity to direct our attention to what we are doing. We need to train the brain. Education doesn't teach us how to concentrate. I come out of education. I didn't know how to concentrate. And for me to get my education, it took a lot of work. I had sleep disorder breathing. And I first I left school at 14 years of age and never to go back. And I left school with a total sense of frustration. I only wrote about it about two years ago with a book that I wrote, Atomic Focus. Because normally it's not something that you shout from the treetops. But I'm a pretty stubborn individual. My parents knew that school was not for me. I didn't want to be there. But I went back one year later. I got my degree. I got my high school, got into a university, got my degree, but it could have been a lot easier, Kim. Now, how many children are in school? How many high school kids, university students, they haven't been gave the tools to concentrate and to be self-resilient. For me, the breath has trained me how to concentrate. It has trained me how to direct my attention. I can influence blood flow going to the brain. I can change my sleep patterns so I can direct and I have better energy. I can also use my breath as a tool for taming the monkey mind and going beyond mindfulness, because I will say about mindfulness, 
mindfulness will be so challenging for the very person who needs it the most. When the mind is in a state of absolute emotional turmoil, the last thing you want to be doing is paying attention to the breath. But we can still, we don't have to pay attention to our breathing to change our breathing practice. If somebody goes for a walk with their mouth closed, that's a breathing exercise. If somebody does breath holding, they stimulate the vagus nerve, they have to activate the relaxation response. That's a breathing exercise. You don't have to pay attention to the breath. So I use about 26 different breathing exercises. And I would agree that I'll tell you why breathing may have been held back. It's too much left of field connotations. You know, the, the beads, the bead brigade and the, the leather sandal big brigade <laughs> and robes and long hair and and gurus, gurus. It it took gurus. It over, unfortunately. And I think that's put it off with the normal individual. And, you know, that's why I want to try and get breathing into. Breathing should be for the people. You know, who doesn't want to have the capacity to concentrate? Who doesn't want to have the capacity to be self-resilient? Who doesn't want to have the capacity to wake up feeling alert? You know, even for sleep and sleep apnea. And I spoke in the World Sleep Congress in Rome of 2022. It was attended by 2,700 sleep doctors. I walked into the main room there. There are CPAP machines everywhere. And I spoke and I said, sleep medicine hasn't moved on in 20 years. And it has not moved on because the recognition of how we breathe during the day influences how we breathe during sleep. So let's start improving our breathing during the day. Nose breathing, improving breathing from a biochemical point of view and a biomechanical point of view, but also helping to bring balance to the autonomic nervous system because that will translate into better breathing during sleep. But the problem with it is, it's difficult to, to scale. It's difficult to commercialize it. Now, I will say this. I wrote Close Your Mouth back in 2003. Back then, it was weird because nobody really wants to know about breathing. <laughs> now, we can't keep up with the pace. Now, it is absolutely, it's getting out there. It hasn't quite reached mainstream yet, but I think it's going to, it's going to reach a tipping point. I think it's going to happen. Definitely, it's going to happen, and I see that there's a lot more involvement on uh, on part of podcasters to put it out there. The thing is, though, a lot of times uh, in the podcasting realm, you have people that cover health, and they bring it up, and then those people that are listening here, but then there's people that are listening to the news stations here, and you're talking, and so it looks like it's a fight between alternative and allopathic, but it's not. It's actually real medicine. That's the that's the confusion. It's real medicine, but it's perceived as as alternative. It's not alternative. It's the real deal. That's the thing. Well, I'll I, give I you want... this example. I, you know, we had a, a recent boxer here. He's a pro, pro boxer. He's doing a world title fight in March of this in about a month's time. He does all of the breathing techniques. You have guys, and this wasn't just about training. You know, it's not just about training the physical body, but it's also about training the breath, but it's also about training the brain. And we bring that in and bring it into their physical performance. Like, why are Navy SEALs doing it? Why are professional rugby guys doing it? Like, we have about 3,000 instructors across 50 countries. And these instructors are working with some of the best teams in the world. You know, I've seen one athlete, the 49ers in San Francisco, one of their athletes using it. Then I look at MMA, some of their athletes are using it. So 
you know, in, in various spheres, it's really happening to get out there. So we have to consider, I'm not sure if the medical community will want to embrace breathing. They may not, not sure. they may not, but people who have a large stake in their, in their optimal performance in their well-being, it's the stakes. It's the biggest commitment. The bigger the commitments, the more people will be interested. I think they have to have big commitments and a lot at stake. Okay, and even in terms of prevention, a lot at stake. I was wondering if you could delineate to the public why breath holding is so important in terms of understanding where you're really at with fitness, because they're correlated intimately. Please. So we use a breath hold time. It's the control pause <clears throat> from the Buteco method, or it's the bolt score from the oxygen advantage. And it's measured as follows. You're sitting down for about five minutes or so. Take a normal breath in and out through your nose. You pinch your nose and you hold your breath. And you time it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe? So it's the length of your comfortable breath hold time. Now, that measurement will give you an indirect measurement of your chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. How tolerant are you to the gas carbon dioxide? So as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, how much of an increase in the blood are you able to tolerate before your breathing is triggered to get rid of the gas? Now, what that tells us is that people with a lower breath hold time, they typically breathe faster, they breathe harder, they have a regular breathing, they have upper chest breathing. This same group of individuals can have sleep problems. They can have exercise intolerance, but also in terms of mental health. Now, there's here's an interesting one. Okay, <laughs> so you have the chemosensitivity <laughs> to carbon dioxide, and then you have the, the sensitivity of what's called the baroreflex. These are pressure receptors in the major blood vessels. You want your pressure receptors in the major blood vessels to be very sensitive to fluctuations in blood pressure. And it's the sensitivity of the baroreflex, which provides very good feedback of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. When you have a higher breath hold time, it implies that you've got a reduced chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. You've got a stronger baroreflex sensitivity. It means you're more resilient. So people who are tracking heart rate variability, all of those devices out there, whoop bands. I'm not sure if Apple now is, is tracking HRV. If it's not doing it already, it will do it at some point. Explain what heart rate variability is, because I know in a lot of podcasts, people talk about it like it, it, they just go on. Wait a minute. We want to bring explain to the public. What is heart rate variability and why is this even being mentioned? Heart rate variability is basically our heart rate. The timing bit of our heartbeat shouldn't be the same that we want to have variable times between our heart beat. And that's influenced by, say, for example, during our breath in, the vagus nerve steps back. So as we inhale air into the lungs, the vagus nerve steps back and there's an acceleration in our heart rate. So if I, if I had a client coming in and I asked the client to locate their pulse just at the angle of their jaw and the carotid artery, and I say to the client, pay attention to the speed of your heart rate, but also pay attention to your breathing. And I'd ask the client, as you breathe in, what do you notice about the speed of your heart rate? And as you breathe out with a slow exhalation, what do you notice about the speed of your heart rate? If you're in good balance, that you're not stressed out, you during the inhalation, your heart rate should accelerate. So the time between heartbeats is shorter. And during the exhalation, your heart rate, the speed of your heart rate should be slower. 
And that's very important because if you have an individual with reduced heart rate variability, it implies that the resilience is affected and they will be more vulnerable to cardiovascular disease. So people, for example, with chronic conditions, diabetes, people who are mentally and physically unwell, they have typically reduced heart rate variability. Like put it this way, if you go to your doctor and you say to the doctor, doctor, I feel stressed. The doctor has no way of quantifying the stress. You know, what is stress? But the, the doctor could objectively measure stress by measuring the person's HRV because heart rate variability. And say, for example, it is genetically determined and the heart rate variability of the, the infant is determined by the heart rate variability of the mother. But if, for example, you have a heart rate variability of, say, 50, if it drops down by about 20%, you have to start taking things easy because it's telling you that you're pushing yourself too hard. And the problem with this is if you don't listen to your body or if you don't, if you're not observing your HRV, if we push it too hard, chronic fatigue or burnout can kick in. So it's kind of a good tool there in terms of telling us when to step off, when to step back a bit and when for rest and recovery. And rest and recovery is really, really important. Who tests for heart rate variability? Are, are, are these the uh, the pulse oximeters? There's different you know? devices. There's, for example, probably the more popular one is um, HeartMath. There's also Whoop. Aura Ring is very popular, but I'm not sure about the accuracy of their HRV. Leaf is another one. Um, so there's quite a number of different devices. And it generally, it's, it would be probably a clinical psychologist who is trained in heart rate variability, who will use it with their clients. Who, how do people get their, their hold time to be longer and longer and longer? It's just a question of doing it. It's a question of, it question of practicing the exercises, but not practicing the breath hold time. So the breath hold time is a measurement. And if you, if you continue to do the breath hold time as a measurement, it's not going to do anything really for you. But say, for example, if you have an individual who does their physical exercise with their mouth closed, and I'm talking about moderate, light to moderate physical exercise with their mouth closed, that will help to reduce the chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. That will improve their breath hold time. If somebody, say, for example, has insomnia and 15 minutes before they want, they go to sleep, they they want to downregulate. All they do is simply put one hand on their chest, one hand just above their navel, tune into their breathing pattern, take a very soft, gentle breath in through the nose and a really relaxed and a slow, gentle breath out. It should be absolutely silent. And the goal should be to reduce the volume of air that one is breathing into the lungs by about 30%. You're doing it correctly when you feel air hunger. When you feel air hunger, it's telling you that carbon dioxide has increased in the blood. So we have to reduce the chemosensitivity of the body to carbon dioxide by deliberately exposing the body to increased carbon dioxide. We can do that during physical exercise, light, moderate exercise with nose breathing, and also slowing down our breath to the point of air hunger. And even the research over the last 30 years, breathing softly in through your nose for five seconds and breathing out slowly out through your nose for five seconds, that will do it are breathing in for four seconds very gently and out for six seconds. So when you slow down the respiratory rate to about between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute, 
that also helps to improve vagal tone or to bring the body and mind into balance. So I think, Kim, it's, it's the way to think about, like, think of the Western society. Society puts a lot of pressure on us, you know. From the young kids, they have to get their exams. They have to get into a career. They have to have this wonderful house. They have to be able to buy all the <laughs> consumer goods. They have to marry the, the, the right partner. Like, there's there's all of these demands that are placed on us as individuals and that can be quite stressful and when you have the breath there and also say stress from their corporate workplace etc the breath is a, a wonderful tool to be able to counter the the effects of chronic stress from both a societal point of view a family point of view and a corporate point of view okay let's talk about one of the 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 difficulties in being in society today is that most of us, right or wrong, are here. And this device entrains people to electronically being hooked in. I believe it does change your heart rate. I believe it stresses you out. I've seen it on the, on the social networks. The People think because they're online, it's not like being in a room with somebody. Well, it's an energy system online. You're in an energy vortex of some kind. You're in an energy space and you're sharing energy with people. So I see a lot of online fighting, conflict, the whole bit. So I feel we're entrained now electronically. And we know now, and the people who made the social networks, I won't name them, but most of the public will know who they are, built them to basically hit the dopamine channels of the brain and get dopamine to drip incessantly. So my question to you, Patrick, is since dopamine is dripping incessantly, what is your what, what do you want to tell the public about the relationship to cell phones and electronics with respect to training in nose breathing and being able to become uh, optimally a breather and for optimal health. What would you say about this since we're all using it? What's your take on this? I'm fortunate enough to be nearly 50 years of age, Kim. I've had a couple of decades of my life without a mobile phone. I have that comparison. I, as a child, I didn't grow up with a mobile phone. I was able to experience nature. I was able to be playing outdoors, getting onto my bicycle, doing whatever I want. Robbing archers, doing all of that <laughs> stuff that kids do. The kids nowadays don't have that chance because they're glued since nine, since 2007, 2008, nine. The mobile phone, they're lit, they literally have been brought up with it. I think it's going to generate a whole lot of issues. Um, it, we're not going to be able to put it back into the box. So I think as parents, it's really important that we get children into sports and we get children into activities that they can still partake in the benefits and all of those things that we could partake in. They have their phone, but we're able to take them out of it. You know, look at the statistics. Look at the statistics in terms of anxiety. Like nine-year-old children having anxiety. ADHD. Huge. You know, that's happening. So we, you know, and you, you could say, okay, it's not necessarily causal, but I think, I think the, the studies have definitely shown that absolutely there's a link between increased mental health problems and the, the use of the mobile phone. 
um, bullying. I would also say that, you know, when you go in on social media channels, so the popular ones, and we're on them too from a work point of view, even though I have to confess I don't do it. I'm lucky enough. I have somebody, two people <laughs> who do our marketing here. Um, look at the bodies that are posing on the on the pictures. Normally, they're beautiful looking bodies, sculpted. So the men are all ripped. They're tanned. They're good looking people, you know. And me as a mere mortal, if I was to start scrolling through it and saying, oh, Jesus Christ, I must be so ugly. You know, I have none of these things. I'm not ripped. I'm not tanned. You know, so there's this. You look pretty tanned to me. I don't know about the rip part. I don't see that. But I mean, (laughs) you look pretty tanned. In fact, you look like you got a burn now. (laughs) But do you get my point? I do. I get your point. Don't put yourself down or I'll have to take a deep breath. (laughs) If you're a normal individual, you don't typically put your body up there on Instagram or any of them. And I've mentioned it and it doesn't matter. But so the problem is that everybody that we see who's posting up on these channels then are beautiful people. And it's giving a perception then that everybody should be like this, but that's not life. We only have a select cohort of individuals who are throwing their bodies up there. Mm-hmm. But then you have a 16-year-old kid and the 16-year-old child is going to be comparing themselves to the images that they see. And they're going to see, okay, I haven't, I'm inferior in comparison to these people. And we have this comparison, you know, this child is going to be comparing against themselves against that. That is going to create angst and anxiety. So, you know, I think there's a major, um, I think it's very sinister. I read a book on about a gambling company and I won't mention the name. They hired a huge team of psychologists and behavioral analysis to track and to monitor the online patterns of the individuals. And the whole point was to to get into the minds of people who were gambling, taking bets, and to make sure that they got them hooked. Now, how sinister is that? Because when you think about gambling now that it's online, you know, alcohol, of course, is bad, but you couldn't bet your house in 10 minutes drinking alcohol you know, people can lose fortunes and it, it can, it's another aspect of it, but it's more so the motive, the motivation of the people who are owning these platforms. We are the product. It's been said all along, you know, I would say don't surrender our attention to the big multinational platforms. Give yourself some attention. Our body is craving for attention. One of the most beautiful things in the world, bring your attention out of the mind, into your body, onto the breath, go for a walk with every cell of your body. You're going out on stage like the boxer going into a ring. You're going into the ring with every cell of your body, not just being ahead, putting the critical mind aside. And this way we can tap into our full potential. And it's a lovely place to be. It's a lovely place when things go wrong because things do go wrong. And they have been going wrong. (laughs) They have been going wrong for billions of people the last few years. I was watching Downton Abbey, which kind of it's this program it's it's really wonderful you know it's and i kind of got hooked in the last month or two and there's an older woman in it and she's a total snob and uh she was talking about life and she says life she says it's one problem after another and then you die you know and you're just getting herself <laughs> and as you know churchill said something else he says like history what's history he said one damn thing after another 
things, life is challenging and that's the way life is. But at least with the breath, we always have that, that comeback that we can, we can latch onto. So I think it's great. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about a little bit more about the nitric oxide part. So if the nitric nitric oxide is what is enhanced when we're nose breathing. Now, how do we know whether it's at work in full capacity, that nitric oxide? Is there a way to know that other than through continuous nose breathing as much as you can, not only in the day when you're aware and you're not speaking, but at night when you're asleep, how do we know the nitric oxide is at work? Is that, are there tests or data or what? Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of information on nitric oxide, actually. Um, one researcher, his name is Professor John Lundberg, and he's based at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. It's a really prestigious, it'd be similar to the Mayo Clinic in the United States. And his title is Professor of Nitric Oxide. And he's been writing about the effects of nitric oxide for about 20 years or so. Now, how would we know if we're harnessing it? We, we don't, you know, but we don't even know if our blood is flowing. We assume it is, we know it is, but we don't necessarily feel it is. <laughs> Um, you know, so there's things that are going on in the human body that we don't necessarily, you know, we just expect them to happen because they're they're happening involuntary anyway. anyway. But but we know that this is happening when we nose breathe. Oh, we yeah, do for sure. know. It's okay. So well okay. documented. If you put go into PubMed and put in nasal nitric oxide. Um, there was a paper written in, in Microbes and Infection in May of 2020, and it talked about could nasal nitric oxide mitigate the effects of COVID? Could nasal nitric oxide? And if you go into the clinical trials in the United States, put in nitric oxide and COVID. So a lot of companies were actually investigating nitric oxide in terms of generating an inhaler or generating some device to inhale nitric oxide into the body without realizing we also have our own source of nitric oxide. And we can increase this by breath holding, by humming. If you hum, you can increase nitric oxide 16 fold. Breath holding can also increase it. So, you know, we should be tapping into that. There are people that are looking at a very fast way of breathing because it's become very popular in a certain portion of the world and heavy, hard breathing. And the difficulty is that when there are other, other aspects of breathing that are taking hold and becoming popularized, there can be confusion on the biochemistry side. So almost like, so if you're hyperventilating, okay? So I know that it's not popular necessarily to talk about Wim Hof and his work, and I really don't really want to talk about his whole work because it's a separate work and his work with cold is great. However, I would like you to say a minute or two about the hyperventilating part of another breathing program that's going on and what the issue is with it and what is some of the confusion about it. Just something. I've made plenty of mistakes with breathing. I've put people into panic attacks. Um, I put one guy into accident and emergency from a panic attack. I've increased anxiety in individuals. And they all did it. You know, it wasn't intentional. And that wasn't even involving hyperventilation. That was involving breath holding. We have to be very careful with the breath. The breath is very, very powerful. Hyperventilation is a stressor. When you breathe in fast and out fast and in fast and out fast, you're stressing the body and mind there. 
You're causing blood vessels to constrict. You're causing left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. You're driving up blood pH. You're causing arousal of the brain. You're driving the body and mind into a stress response. It's thought that by giving a controlled dose of stress that the body makes adaptations, and these adaptations then are beneficial in terms of good immune responses. However, we as human beings react differently to the stressors depending on our own resilience. If I have somebody coming in with who is quite unwell and they have different complaints, I don't give them stressor exercises. Their body and mind is under enough stress. What I want to do is for those individuals, I want to help to bring them back into balance. I want to downregulate them. I want to help them recover. So there's times to do stressor exercises, but there's times not to do them. And the two, two main ways to stress the body and mind is one, to hyperventilate. And a hyperventilation is just fast, hard breathing. You know, one breath in through your nose and out through your nose or in through your nose and out through your mouth, in through your nose, out through your mouth. And long breath holes are a stressor. So those are the two ways to stress the body and mind. Now, here's another aspect. When you combine hyperventilation with long breath holes, so say, for example, you hyperventilate for 20 or 30 breaths. During that time, you've got rid of a lot of carbon dioxide from the lungs which in turn is going to reduce carbon dioxide in the blood. And carbon dioxide is your alarm to breathe. So if you hyperventilate, you get rid of a lot of carbon dioxide. And then if you hold your breath after the hyperventilation, you can hold your breath for a really long time because the alarm to breathe, which is carbon dioxide, has been depleted. And it will take quite some time for carbon dioxide to climb back up towards normal to trigger your breathing. But the problem here is that the really long breath hold can cause your blood oxygen saturation to drop, not to severe hypoxia, which will be in around 85 or 80%, but below 70%, where you get disoriented, 60% where you pass out, 50% where there's a reduction of blood flow in the brain. I've seen people go to 30%. I don't teach those extremes, and I don't practice them myself. And the only reason being is because I would be afraid to. I would be afraid to hyperventilate and do a long breath hold because I don't know the consequences of reduced blood flow to the brain. Now, when you drop your blood oxygen saturation down to about 85%, there is an increased blood flow to the brain. But it's when you drop it to below 50%, that's when the problems are. People are passing out. People are passing out in the bath during hyperventilation and they're drowning. You know, so, you know, the other thing is chronic stress. Chronic stress ex- exerts a toll on the human body. And, you know, it has been shown to produce different... I'll give you one example. One individual who works with one of our instructors in Italy, he's a 21-year-old individual, a male. He watched the hyperventilation technique on YouTube. He started practicing it. He developed facial spasms, uncontrollable movement of the, the tongue. That went on for five years. Now, the, our instructor has been working with that person, just teaching them breathe light, teaching them the absolute opposites, the hyperventilation to help to bring them back, making some progress, but still hasn't fully resolved the facial spasms. Tinnitus of the ears can be brought on by hyperventilation. You know, if you say, have, say, I got an email in last week, a 76 year old man. He said, I've got this thing wrong with me, that thing wrong with me, this thing, a list of a couple of different complaints, cardiovascular, et cetera. He says, I am hyperventilating and do a long breath holes. And I said, please, 
don't hyperventilate and do a long breath hold for you. It's not suitable for your age and it's not suitable for your health. So we have to think of hyperventilation and associated breathing techniques. That's like going for a sprint. So you go to the gym, you sprint hard, all out. It's not suitable for everybody, but it is suitable definitely for some people, young people, resilient people, and also people with good breathing. Because if you have already a person who is in chronic hyperventilation syndrome, if that individual who was already hyperventilating chronically as part of their everyday breathing, if they hyperventilate then acutely, deliberately, their carbon dioxide lowers, but it will take them a lot longer for their carbon dioxide to return back to baseline. So I would only encourage somebody to do something like hyperventilation and breath holding if their breath hold time is above 25 seconds. And also, if they're younger have than to be pretty good. <laughs> 55 years of age, once we start hitting 55, 60, that's when I start changing breathing patterns because, you know, we have to bear in mind as we get a bit older, you know, we don't want to be overdoing it either. And we can do, we can overdo it with the breath. I want to talk about something a little bit controversial because so many of us have been impacted by it. And that is when COVID hit and there was, there were hundreds and millions of people saying, I can't breathe with these masks on now. Sometimes it's the kind of mask they were wearing, but it was a chronic complaint and terror that people had. And I remember seeing a video that you did explaining why people felt air hunger with the mask on, that it wasn't just the mask, it was something else. Can you talk, can you speak to that? Because we're all living in different places Regulations are changing, like on a dime. One minute you have to be masked, the next minute you don't. The one minute you have to do this, one minute you can't go there, the next minute you can't go out of your house. We don't know what we're living in anymore. So for those of you that are going to be watching this, the segment of It's Rainmaking Time with Patrick McCune, please talk to the issue of the mask. What is actually happening? People thought they were losing oxygen. Explain it. So, so when we wear a mask, what happens is that we are breathing into the mask and the air that's coming from our lungs is quite high in carbon dioxide. It's 5% of the atmosphere. And then when we're re-breathing that air, so that air gets trapped in the mask. It doesn't all filter out through the mask. So we are breathing that, if I use the word, not necessarily stale, but it's used air. We're re-breathing that back into the lungs. Now, that in itself isn't that much of a problem, to be honest with you. However, it can be for many people. Because when you're rebreathing carbon dioxide back into the lungs, you're increasing carbon dioxide in the lungs, you're increasing carbon dioxide in the blood that's leaving the lungs. The brain reacts then to the increased carbon dioxide by driving air hunger. The person feels air hunger, so then they switch to mouth breathing to alleviate the feeling of air hunger, and they breathe fast and shallow. But that's going to initiate a stress response. Now, the people who are more susceptible to feeling the air hunger are people with already poor breathing, people with anxiety, people with uh, panic disorder, trauma, ADD, ADHD, asthma, respiratory complaints, older people. The more vulnerable people in our societies, when they wear a mask, they will feel the air hunger. The problem is getting people to wear a mask, but not explaining 
how should you breathe while you wear the mask? Number one is when you feel the air hunger, don't open your mouth. Breathe through your nose and also breathe nose slow and low because that will help with your gas exchange, but it will also keep you calmer. Like I went and I got my hair cut and the barber at the time had a mask on (laughs) and he was only about 22, 23 years of age. And I was listening to him breathe through the mask. He was breathing mouth fast and shallow. And I was only thinking to myself, here's a guy that's working eight hours with this thing on. And he's doing this five days a week. And this is going on for weeks. Like we had months, years. I thought, I know, I think we might've been wearing masks for up to two years in Ireland and other countries. What impact has that after having on him? You know, so I think it, it, it just putting it out there to tell people to wear masks. I, okay, I get it. Yeah. But not taking into consideration that people can be very susceptible to air hunger, you know, and this has been shown, the literature has shown that say, for example, if you have children with childhood separation, anxiety, or panic disorder or trauma, you have them rebreathe carbon dioxide simply by breathing in carbon dioxide, it can trigger a panic attack, but that's what the mask does. Okay. But I, I, for example, when I flew and you had to be masked on planes, I used it as an opportunity to nose breathe and to get quiet after listening to you talk about it. It helped me a lot. Of course, I use a bamboo mask that's, you know, that's very soft and it's not those harsh, what do you call it, medical masks, et cetera. But it helped a lot make something that was unbearable and almost impossible for me doable. Not that I like it. I'm not advocating the use of masks, but I'm saying it made something that became a regulation and forced on the public, it made it bearable where it wouldn't have been otherwise. No way. And had I been breathing through my mouth in there? Impossible. Impossible. I don't know how people did it or do it. And the other thing, Kim, is that if people were explained that the air hunger that you feel while wearing the mask is not that your blood oxygen saturation is dropping. Now, here's okay. I'll just qualify a little bit. When you wear the mask, it is pooling carbon dioxide inside the mask. You're rebreathing this carbon dioxide back into your lungs. It increases carbon dioxide in the blood. But hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen in the blood, starts releasing oxygen more readily. So your blood oxygen saturation, if you were wearing a pulse oximeter, could drop by a couple of points. And that's not necessarily because you're taking less oxygen in. It means that the oxygen can be better delivered throughout the body. So when people say, well, I was wearing a mask and my blood oxygen saturation dropped by from, say, 98% down to 96%. So that's a sign that I was taking less oxygen. I was getting less oxygen into my body. That's not correct. Wearing the mask is pooling carbon dioxide. The increase of carbon dioxide in the lungs and blood causes a drop to blood pH. Hemoglobin affinity for oxygen reduces. So hemoglobin is releasing oxygen more readily throughout the body. And as hemoglobin releases oxygen more readily, the blood oxygen saturation drops a little bit. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Particularly if you, if you, I think that the public's going to need to hear it a few times to get it because one assumes when I was putting on the mask, I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm losing oxygen. There's a fear about it. Like, oh my God, because we don't know about oxygen. Who knows? You don't learn about it in school per se. You don't learn the relationship that you talked about and that you're talking about all over the world between carbon dioxide and the exchange with oxygen and hemoglobin. 
We don't learn it. We don't know. We don't even have that reference point, not even that. So then when you apply the mass, it appears like, it feels like you're losing oxygen because you're experiencing breath hunger, you know? So the breath hunger is important, apparently, for oxygenation. And that's the opposite of everything intuitively we may feel and have heard. It's, it's almost like another world is being brought in of knowledge that seems counterintuitive, but it's real and it's data-driven, correct? There's been enough. It, this is just normal physiology. You know, what I'm talking about is just, it's just normal. If you open up a medical textbook, look at the functions of the nose, look at the functions of carbon dioxide. It's, it's not just a waste gas. You know, there's so many, it's, it's the primary regulator of blood pH. It helps to open up the airways. It helps to open up the blood vessels. You know, it's causing, as I said, what's called the Bohr effect, that hemoglobin affinity for oxygen reduces in the presence of carbon dioxide. You know, it's all simple stuff, though. And it should be stuff that should be taught to us in school because it gives us then, like if I have, say, somebody who's prone to panic disorder and they can have a terrifying reaction to suffocation. You know, we feel uncomfortable. You, you wear a mask, you might feel a bit uncomfortable. They think they're going to die because they have an exaggerated alarm response to the feeling of suffocation. But I bring the person in with panic disorder and I will give them a little teaspoon of suffocation. I will have them do the breathe light exercise to increase carbon dioxide in the blood. But it's a very controlled dose because I want to desensitize your body's reaction to that. And by doing that, then we can reduce their fear of suffocation. So the other aspect then is that we're helping to reduce their chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide so that their breathing then becomes lighter and slower. And the best way to practice a breathing exercise and to see if it works or not for you, if you have a stuffy nose, do this exercise. Take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your nose and just gently nod your head up and down as you hold your breath. And do that for about 20 or 30 seconds. Then let go, but breathe in through your nose. Calm your breathing, breathe normally for about a minute, and then do it again. So normal breath in and out and pinch your nose and hold. You're just gently nodding your head up and down as you hold your breath. Continue holding your breath until you feel a moderate air hunger. Then let go, breathe in through your nose. Your nose will start opening up. Then, before you go to sleep, you're sitting down, you might be watching some light TV or you might be just listening to something. Put one hand on your chest, one hand just above your navel. And gently start slowing down your breathing. Really soft and then slow down the speed of the air coming into your nose. And a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle breath out. And by doing that, so by gently softening and slowing down your breathing, you're reducing the volume of air that you're taking into your lungs, which in turn is increasing carbon dioxide in the lungs and blood. You feel air hunger. But check, does it make you feel sleepy? Check, does it change the saliva in the mouth? And normally within about three to four minutes, we know that when we breathe less air, not too much, it's just about breathing about 30% less air to the point that we have a tolerable air hunger. It helps to stimulate the vagus nerve and it helps to activate the rest and digest response. We know that we're activating the rest response when we feel sleepy. We know that we are activating the digest response when we have increased watery saliva in the mouth good tool. You know, conversely, if we get stressed, your mouth goes dry. If you start hyperventilating, your mouth goes dry. You're alert. You're primed. You're ready for action. But we don't always want to be in that state. 
because that would be a recipe for burnout. We need to be able to rest and digest. We need to be able to recover. Can you speak for a few minutes before we um, we wrap this up about your relationship to the Buteco Institute and clinic and your experience in Moscow learning and training and was it in what was it like for you and did you ever get a chance to meet him I was fortunate enough I met Dr Buteco um and he was a Ukrainian doctor he made this discovery back in 1952 and I left university. I was struggling a lot. I went into the corporate world. I went to a university in Dublin called Trinity College in Dublin. And I was working for a multinational. I was highly stressed in there. And I wasn't a multinational. It was just that I didn't have the resilience. I didn't have the, the energy, et cetera, dealing with staff and things like that. I came across his, his um, technique from a newspaper article. I did the nose unblocking exercise and it helped open up my nose. I started breathing less air and I started taping my mouth closed. This is going back about 23, 24 years ago. I used nasal dilator on my nose to keep my nose open because I always had chronic nasal issues. And I taped my mouth and I woke up. It was the second morning. I really remember waking up. It was the best night's sleep I had in about 10 years. And then I was driving from one side of Ireland to another, and this thought occurred that I should really be teaching this method. So I contacted the Russian embassy because I knew nobody, very few people that I knew that were Russian in Ireland. So they tracked down um, the Buteco Clinic. I called them. I went over. I was there for about a month or so. I was able to shadow. So whenever they were working with their patients, there were, was a translator there, and I was shadowing them. And I was fortunate enough, I met Dr. Buteco twice while he was in the clinic. Now, he's, he was older. He was 83 years of age at the time. But he signed my diploma as well, which is kind of nice as well. Um, so I think it was a wonderful experience. It was, it, was, it was interesting as well. I was in my early, well, I was in kind of my mid-20s at the time. Getting the information firsthand. And especially, I suppose, I didn't really appreciate the importance of I never even got a. I never even had a photograph taken while I was with Doctor Buteco. I should have, you know. I just met him, and I never. I kind of, in his presence, I didn't want to be just saying, "No, oh, this is an opportunity for taking a photograph." But so I just had a conversation, um, and then I come back, and it was interesting. Like I started on St Patrick's Day, March the seventeenth of two thousand and two. I opened up a clinic in Galway City, and I had my first three clients about a month later. Took about a month to get my first three clients. But it was the newspapers that really helped me and TV. It was the media. So there were a few TV programs that were happening with people with asthma and also one with cystic fibrosis. And I worked with them. And the cameras were on those individuals. A few journalists then did the technique and wrote about it in the newspapers. And I was fortunate enough, Kim, I've been working full-time with this, full-time. You know, so for 20 years, I've written nine books and they're published in 16 languages, you know, so I've been blessed. I have a, I found a work that calling, not, calling. nothing made sense, you know, to, to leave what I left. I left completely my degree, my master's degree behind, never touched it again. And I completely then refocused in this area, which is a completely different field. Um, But it's really worked out. It has really worked out. So I would say to anybody, Trust your gut instinct. But I also believe I came across breathing in 1998. 
the very fact that I had my connection to my breath paved or at least opened the way that I was more susceptible to listen to my gut. Because before that, I would have been very much stuck in my head, as most of Western society is. You know, we are trained how to think, but we are not trained how to bring a gap between thoughts. We are not trained how to stop thinking. We are not trained to control our mind, to be able to direct our attention. So education has fallen short very much on a couple of levels. One is it hasn't trained us how to concentrate. And number two, it hasn't trained us how to deal with stress. Do you wish that you could ask Dr. Bachenko any questions now, 20 or 25 years later? Are there any questions you still, you may have that you would, if you could pull them aside secretly, just you and him, <laughs> would you ask him yeah. anything or would you want answers to anything? I would have been interested in terms of the spiritual component of it. You know, the the impact that focusing on the breath and that connection with the mind as well and that stillness of the mind. You know, Dr. Buteco, the technique when you put it into Google, people will say, well, it's all based on carbon dioxide, so it's not true. You know, carbon dioxide is not just black and white. There can be that, you know, individuals can have the symptoms of hyperventilation, but they can have normal carbon dioxide. So it's not always so clear cut. But the human body is so complex as well. And Dr. Buteco, he made this discovery back in 1952. And the available science and the theory back then was all about carbon dioxide. That's why he weighed it on carbon dioxide. But now we know about nitric oxide. But that's only since 1991. But we also know about the baroreflex. We know about heart rate variability, the vagus nerve. All that stuff plays a role in what we are doing. So... When people say, well, the Buteco method, it doesn't help with this, that, and the other. Ultimately, I have to ask people is, well, what it does it involve? It says, breathe in and out through your nose. It says that your breathing should be light. It says your breathing should be slow. Your breathing should be low. That's normal breathing. That is normal breathing. That's what the Buteco method is about. Do you think that he would think, if he were alive today, that his work vis-a-vis -vis what you're doing with his work is going as far as he was hoping it could go? Like, would he be, how, how would he feel right now looking at, you know, obviously the oxygen advantage, uh, breathing through your nose. In other words, what's getting out to the public at large? Would he be happy? Would he say it's like if we had to grade it, it's an A, it's a B, it's a C? What, what do you think he would think? as a pioneer. Yeah, it's yeah, it's I would think he would be quite happy at this point. Um there has been an amazing amazing trajectory in terms of the awareness of nasal breathing and light breathing, the biochemical dimension of breathing, more so in the last 4 years. And yeah, it's What do you want your autograph? Well, I don't know about that. I'm not, Would he want to have a picture with you? No, <laughs> I think he'd want a picture. Know, like, I think I'm so. I'm not going to take any credit for it. I was just <laughs> fortunate enough. You know, I was a messenger. You know, I was fortunate enough to come across this technique. It was tremendous for me. I've seen really positive results with people with asthma. Amazing results. Then we brought into sleep. Then I brought into people with anxiety and panic disorder. And then it was sports performance, mental and physical performance. That's when the oxygen advantage came out. You know, so 
now we have moved on. We still do, of course, the Buteco method. And we have brought in other breathing techniques. We do actually do a hyperventilation with controlled, nothing to the extreme. And the fact is that it's out there anyway. People are doing it. But what I do is I so yeah, okay, let's do hyperventilation and breath holding. But um, let's change it. Instead of doing 30 breaths, do 20 breaths. Do it in and out through your nose. Exhale and hold, but wear pulse oximeter so you can monitor your blood oxygen saturation. And at the end of the hyperventilation and breath holding, then do breathe light. Always remember, if you stress the body and mind, you should recover the body and mind. And recovery is just as important, if not more important, than the stress component. I think overall he would be happy. You know, it, ha- it has evolved. We've kept Buteco Clinic very much original, very much original. See, I couldn't change Buteco, so I didn't. So that is pretty much as it was. But Oxygen Advantage, I could change. There was no tradition associated with Oxygen Advantage. And that gave me the ability then to bring in so many more exercises. But it's providing people with an understanding. I think really what we need is we need to bring the science into breathing. You know, all too often breathing was just put out there and it was very much taught according to tradition. And Buteco is about tradition. See, the problem with a tradition is you can't change it. But we also need breathing to move with the times. And we need also breathing to move with the language that... I'll give you this story. I was working with a premiership footballer. These are top-end, highly paid professional soccer players, football players. And I was talking about pre-match anxiety. This is what you do to regulate your states before you go out onto the field. And he automatically gave me pushback. And he says, I don't have anxiety going out onto a football field. And I was just thinking to myself, (laughs) I used entirely the wrong language here. So the next time when we were meeting, I said, this is what we do to improve your focus. I want to get you into that flow state before you go out onto that field. And I want you to be prepared mentally that you will go through a brick wall, that nothing is going to distract you, that your attention is moving simultaneously with time, that there is no differentiation between the athlete and the game at hand. And he got it. It's the language that we use and how we we present communication. Exactly. And oxygen advantage is very male dominated, whereas Butek was very female. You know, and I gathered that back in 2010 because when I was giving courses for anxiety and panic disorder, this is where I made most of my mistakes with this group of people, you know, because I didn't understand the fear response and the suffocation because their anxiety and panic disorder, breathing has always been a central component of that condition. So now we're going into managed breathing and it's going to read, they're going to relive a lot of the stuff that that has been traumatic with them for them in the past. It's about dipping the toe gently into the water. But when I put it out there, 90% of the people who attended, there were 3,000 people attended these small classes for anxiety and panic disorder. 90% were female. 90% were female though. So then I said to myself, I said, where are all the men in this? You know, it was because I used anxiety and panic disorder in the title. It was the typewriter language. (laughs) that is exactly it yes psychological i mean the whole perception of it is part of the barrier to it yes yeah yeah Yeah, very interesting because now it's take it's taken off yeah advantage launched the thing like a whole other trajectory it looks like to me It, it opened up it opened up breathing more so i think we were one of the first to to open up breathing to a healthy audience as well. 
for resilience and mental and physical performance, you know. Um, the book was interesting, The Oxygen Advantage. I actually started writing it in 2011, 2012, 2013. It was over a fairly and I was lucky. And, you know, this is how life happens, right? The Closure Mouth Book, which is a very simple book, was sitting inside in a dental surgery in California. In walks the patient. The patient has asthma. He picks the book off, up off the counter and he asks the dentist, can I bring it home? He starts putting it into practice and he gets some results with it. And then he rings me up and he says, do you want, it was a Skype. There wasn't even Zoom at the time. So we did a Skype call. And in the course of the conversation, he says, hey, he says, yeah, he says, I'm a book agent and I'm a book agent for Richard Branson and uh, Nelson Mandela, Bishop Tutu, and all of these highly prominent authors. And I said, wow. I said, I am writing a manuscript with the application of breathing for sports. And I had called the book The Oxygen at the Oxygen Athlete. And he said, will you send on the manuscript? I said, I will. Sent it on to him. He said, he come back. He says, you have to rewrite the whole thing again. I said, why? He said, it's too sciencey. He said, I need you to read that. He said, I need you to write that as if you're down in the pub explaining breathing across a, a couple of pints of Guinness. And that's what I had to do. And, you know, only for I met him, his name was Doug Abrams. And he helped me with that manuscript. That manuscript then was put to auction with Penguin and with um, <laughs> Harper Collins. And I was so lucky to get that deal. And that catapulted it. So this is how life, how little things can happen from one book, close your mouth, sitting on a, on a counter in a dental practice. And it's amazing That's a how, great life, book. how life can steer us. It really, really is, you know. That's a great book, by the way, too, for people that can't, having difficulty focusing <laughs> and concentrating. That may be the book to start with and then move into the oxygen advantage if they, if they, if they love to read and they can hang in there. Yeah, I, I have another one called The Breathing Cure. It's very Yeah, I saw heavy. that on Amazon. It's very, very science heavy. It's because I wanted to get breathing into this it's to show people, you know, the more we can reference it, that, okay, we don't always know all of the science because science is catching up with it. Um, Brett told time we've, we have been using for over 20 years. It was only in 2018 that Brett told time was first used to identify one characteristic in obstructive sleep apnea. You know, so here's a similar example. It was a paper by a Harvard doctor, Messino using breath toll time to identify what's called high loop gain. If somebody has a low breath toll time, a low control pause, they have high loop gain. And if they have what's high loop, loop gain, gain, what is that? So loop gain refers to the stability of your breathing during sleep. So we can imagine this. Somebody with a low breath toll time. When that person stops breathing during sleep due to collapse of the upper airways, which is obstructive sleep apnea, as they stop breathing, carbon dioxide increases in the blood. But a person with a very low breath toll time has a very strong reaction to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood. But when that person resumes breathing, they resume breathing with such hard and fast breathing that their carbon dioxide goes from too high to too low. And when their carbon dioxide goes too low, the brain doesn't send a signal to breathe. And also the output from the brain to the upper airway dilator muscles is reduced. It's a vicious circle. And 30% of people with obstructive sleep apnea have high loop gain. Surgery doesn't work for this group. Mandibular advancement doesn't work for this group. But breathing exercises do. 
That's why sleep now, sleep medicine, if you think about obstructive sleep apnea, 90% of people are undiagnosed, 90% in both the adult and the childhood population. It typically affects between 25 to 50% of men. And it, it increases as we get older. But with females, it's about 10% of females up to about 50 years of age. And post-menopause, it increases 200 to 300%. That's phenomenal. I heard you say that on another podcast and I was shocked. Why? Why? It's thought that the hormone progesterone, um, which during the monthly cycle, there is an increase in progesterone and post-menstruation, progesterone levels off. And because there's a reduction in progesterone, that there's the upper airway is going to be more liable to collapse. Now, also weight distribution changes as we get a bit older. So there's more weight, say, in the torso. There's weight in the throat. There can be fat deposits in the tongue. So anatomically, the airway gets narrower, but also because more weight in the belly, it impinges the movement of the diaphragm. And the diaphragm breathing muscle is mechanically linked with the upper airway dilator muscles. So there's a couple of things going on there. There's the the drop in progesterone, and there's also the change in weight distribution in the female and obstructive sleep apnea is associated with hot flashes because obstructive sleep apnea is dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. That's when we go into that stress response, that increased sympathetic drive. And this is how breathing can be one way to help to bring balance to that autonomic nervous system. Fascinating. I know that I know people who have sleep apnea who can't stand the machines they have to have in the room with them. and on their face and the, it doesn't work for them. In fact, for many people, uh, some people will swear by it and other people say they, it has, it can't, they can't do it. They just can't. The compliance is the issue with it. You know, it's, it's, it's the machine works, but it's the compliance. Um, I think it's a 50% fall off rate. So you can imagine that here's a treatment, which is the gold standard of treatment. And 50% of the patients who have been prescribed this treatment cannot tolerate it. That's not a success. So isn't there a way to to bridge your work and calling uh, forward into the sleep space amongst doctors? Or is it too or is it too soft for in other words, they can't give pills. They're not going to give tech. Even though there's basic things, keep the lights out, try not to have bright lights or lights on after a certain point, don't drink coffee at night, you know, all of these things, right? But wouldn't one think that the sleep sleep medicine is due for a transformation and that this would be an incredible thing to bring into sleep medicine because it is sleep medicine. Sleep medicine fu- fundamentally is, is not working at the moment. Um, and I know that's a very bold statement. The founding father of sleep medicine is considered to be a French doctor called Dr. Christian Guimeneau. And he was a Stanford-based medical doctor. He coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea. He also developed the apnea hypopnea index, which is the measurement of sleep apnea severity. In the last five years of his life, he spoke about the critical importance of restoring nasal breathing. Now, I spoke in Bordeaux and I spoke in different countries, and he also spoke at those same con- conferences And I remember him getting up and standing up in a room with several hundred medical doctors and sleep clinicians. And he stood up and he said, he said, you have missed the elephant in the room. 
The elephant in the room when it comes to sleep is mouth breathing. Now he was saying it to them, but it takes 20 years for something like this to take hold. And, you know, we have never, there has been no study. There's been plenty of studies looking at does mouth breathing make sleep apnea worse? Yes, generally, absolutely. Those studies are available. Um, nobody has looked at what happens when you change breathing patterns during wakefulness. So I wrote an article um, with two ear, nose and throat doctors, and we have had it published in a peer reviewed journal called Clinical Medicine in January of 2021, I think. It's breathing re-education and the phenotypes of sleep apnea. We supported it with 170 references. Wow. We showed that nose breathing, what it does. We looked at the phenotypes of sleep apnea. We spoke about breathing from a biochemical, biomechanical, resonance frequency breathing. When you change your breathing during wakefulness, how it's influencing your breathing during sleep. But the, we have to admit there has been no research in it. We do need a research outlet to get a group of people with obstructive sleep apnea change their breathing and measure what impact that has had on their AHI. And this would be for value for money because when you teach somebody breathing exercises, economically, you know, it's it's a very cost-effective routine. You're giving people the tools. And mouths taping alone now has really caught on. Like we were one of the first and you know, you can do mouth taping very effectively. We have our own tape, that, which actually surrounds the mouth to bring the lips together. You don't even have to cover the lips to bring the lips together. So it's not this draconian thing of simply ducting up. It's, you know, there is a tape that can be very simply used. That will help obstructive sleep apnea in the main, but it's not enough just to tape. You need also to change breathing patterns because if somebody has a low breath hold time, their breathing is quite hard and fast. And we have to think about this upper airway as a tube. The resistance in the tube is going to be related to the volume and to the speed of breathing. And if one is breathing harder and fast, there's an increased turbulence and resistance in the upper airway, which is going to contribute to collapse. We also have to consider that if you're breathing with good recruitment of the diaphragm, that the throat is stiffer and less likely to collapse. We also need to consider that when you're breathing in through the nose, you have your tongue ideally resting in the roof of the mouth, which in turn helps to open up the airways. But if we really wanted to help and to get to the root cause of obstructive sleep apnea, we would be looking at the breathing of young children. Because young children who were born with high palates, with jaws that are set back, with tongue tie, eating soft foods, lack of breastfeeding, all of this is, is influencing the shape of the face. It's not getting good forward growth of the, of the jaws. The airway is narrow. And this child then is going to be susceptible to sleep disorders for the rest of their life. So if we really want to get to the crux of sleep, we have to think of children. I, the two points that you mentioned, which, aside from what you just said, in total is the lack of breastfeeding which has been kind of demonized uh, and shamed around the world, mostly here in the U.S. I don't know about in Europe. And uh, not chewing enough because we have so much soft food. Profound. And that starts very young. Very, very young. Right there. A, a beautiful face is a functional face. You know, I... And many others, you can identify somebody who has been mouth breathing for a period of time because oh, normally, 
normally their <laughs> maxilla, their top jaw isn't forward enough. Their cheeks are flatter. Their lower jaw is set back. They have overcrowding of teeth. Overcrowding of teeth, crooked teeth, is not just an aesthetic issue. It's telling you that the jaws aren't big enough for the teeth. And if the top jaw, the maxilla, isn't, isn't developed enough for the, the teeth, neither is it developed enough for the tongue. There's no room then for the tongue and the roof of the mouth, and the tongue is likely to encroach the airway. Breastfeeding is not just about nutrition. So even using something like a breast pump, yes, the milk will be the same, but the baby isn't getting the benefit of taking the milk from the mother because it's by taking the milk from the mother that the baby has to exercise their jaws. So breastfeeding Boy, is necessary. I didn't even think of that. I didn't even it's, think of that. That's, it's I get for that. the craniofacial yeah. growth. And then we throw in, you know, like our ancestors, the kids would have been breastfed for a couple of years. I'm not sure how many years, but certainly I would assume two years plus. Societal pressures on all parents, you know, they're up to their necks in mortgages. Society has put it in a way that young parents have to get out to work to pay mortgages. And unfortunately, the, the mother doesn't have the ability. They don't have the, you know. So I think there's a societal influence there that needs some changing. For sure. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the listeners of It's Rainmaking Time today in summary of what you've been sharing? Yeah, I suppose there's only one way. Like we can talk away about breathing, but ultimately the only way that I got into breathing was when I practiced exercises and I could feel a difference. And the one thing about the breath is that it's pretty quick. So, and bear in mind that once you learn simple tools, you have these tools for the rest of your life. I will say that it has given me a tremendous capacity in terms of being able to have a stillness and a softness in life, but to be also more, to be more creative, to be more productive, and ultimately, ultimately to be more content. If I was that same individual back in my early 20s, constantly ruminating and thought, living in my head. I didn't consider I had anxiety, but I did have poor concentration, waking up feeling exhausted in the morning. That was a terrible recipe to actually experience life. We cannot experience life when we're ruminating and thought, when we haven't got the energy to do what we want to do. So ultimately, these are tools to improve quality of life. This is about, you know, the motivational, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs back in the day, he says, we need food, we need clothing, we need shelter. Yes, back then we did. Now we need we need functional breathing because with that, we have good sleep. Functional breathing and good sleep. And then we have the tools to enjoy life and to connect with life. And aside from, I don't want it to sound woo-woo or anything like that, you know, people might say, well, it's difficult paying any attention to my breathing and I don't have the time. And I'm going to say, listen, what's the alternative? Are you living your life stuck in your head? Are you able to be, you know, deal with difficult situations as they arise? Because things do happen. And by changing and tapping into your breath, it's not just about paying attention to your breathing. It's understanding that when a difficult situation arises, you can automatically tap into your breath and you can tell the brain that the body is safe. The brain then will send signals of calm to the body and you are in a better position to be able to approach that difficult challenge with clear-headed decision-making. 
And ultimately, that's going to be a measure of a leader. This isn't left to field. This is right down the center. I understand that you have spent a lot of money on an app, and I want to know about it, and I want you to share it with those that are going to be listening. So what is it? What exactly does it do? Yeah, this is, we always wanted to bring out high quality app, you know, and the first time I got a quotation, it was $30,000. I said, great, let's go with that. <laughs> so that was after a few months. And then it was up to 40, 50, 60, 70,000. And now we've just spent in total about $150,000. The app is is literally to replace me. So if, for example, somebody has panic disorder, that they download the app, it's free of charge. They click on their daily plan for panic disorder and they will get exercise to do in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening, and also sequences to develop, to develop habits. The same is for, for women's breathing because it's different to men, people with sleep issues, people who want to improve their breathing for athletic performance, public speaking. So we put in so many different respiratory and asthma, et cetera. So basically the knowledge that I have, that because I, I tailor the exercise to suit people who are coming in my door. And I do that to kind of get the results and also to minimize risk. And that's what the app is about. So, yeah, so it will be under, it'll be oxygen advantage. That's fantastic. I remember doing an interview with Lynn Buchanan, who was one of the early Stargate people in the remote viewing space. And he put together, it took him a couple of years, actually. He put together the remote viewing training at beginning, middle, and advanced and he also brought it uh, on Kajabi, I guess Kajabi, which is an Irish company. Company. So I think that's I think that's great because you're duplicating. You're you're doing what you can to pass on the baton, without physically having to have you present all the time. You're present in a virtual sense, but the body of work is available immediately. I think it's great. Congratulations! It's a big feat. Thanks. No, it's it's one of our one of our goals is to to get it out there. It came up in our conversation here, you know, breathing is, is, has got a very good potential to help people. A lot of people don't know about it. And this is an opportunity for people to see firsthand and more importantly, practice it and see what does it do for you? Because I think that's ultimately what it's about, you know. I look forward to it. I'll be one of your first feedback mechanisms. <laughs> it's a pleasure and an honor to be with you at this time in human history and to know that you're here on behalf of humankind to bring the central paradigm, the central knowledge to the world. I can't thank you enough. For those of you who, for those of you who would like to hear more about Patrick and his work, whether you want to take some workshops and read his book, Close Your Mouth, and or the Oxygen Advantage, you can go to, is it oxygenadvantage.com? Yes, right. Yes. Go to oxygenadvantage.com. And for those of you who are interested in seeing more, it's Rainmaking Time specials. Um, Ken from the United Kingdom and I worked on it's rainmakingtime.ch. We finally revamped the site after 10 years of being in digital jail. I'm very excited. We used thesis and focus to do it and organized it beautifully. And now we're ready to go. We're also looking for editors, video editors and sound editors to be able to bring you more specials. And um, if you have any questions or would like to leave information for me or for the site on how to improve the work that we're doing, please leave it at itsrainmakingtime.ch. And anybody who would like to sponsor the works that have already been done or that are about to be done, you can get in contact with us there. We thank you so much. 
Thank you again, Patrick. It's rainmaking time. Thank you again. God bless you.